Welcome to Research Lives and Culture, the podcast that offers conversations about the research environment. Each week I interview someone who works or has previously worked in research. We discuss about the approach they have taken to navigate their career, the critical decisions they have made, the joys they have had in their work, and the challenges that they have faced. I ask questions about what a supportive research environment really looks like, and about the actions that we can take to help the research culture empower people to thrive. My name is Dr. Sandrine Sou. I am a coach, facilitator, and trainer for the research environment, and your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the path to research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. In this episode of the podcast, I've invited a guest who doesn't come from the research world, or not yet. I have the pleasure to have with me Juliana Kayaga Sremba. And uh, Kaya, as she um, calls herself, is an organizational psychologist who works in the business world as a consultant. And she is planning to do a PhD very soon. But I felt that her perspective was an interesting one on the podcast. Like several of my other guests, she's also involved in this uh, NEMRA network, which is a network of researchers in Uganda, who is uh, really trying to support researchers develop their, their professional competencies and build communities of researchers across the country. I think that uh, Kaya's perspective is an interesting one in terms of the work that she has done in businesses in supporting the, the work on diversity. She's written a book, and her book is looking at uh, the perspective of women in Ugandan society, the expectations that are placed on them. It's interesting to think about how the, the role of women in, in academia and in, in the business world is dealt with differently in different countries. I hope that you will find the conversation with Kaya really fascinating and that it inspires you to consider the type of work that you can do either in your in the research environment that you're in or other professional environments in the way that you are developing practices that are supportive to lots of different people. Enjoy the conversation. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I've been doing a series of podcast recording with a number of people who are linked to the NEMRA network. So today with Kaya, and she's just told me before we started recording that she has a, a baby who is in the house. If you hear some little baby chat, that's where it's coming from. I'm based in Sheffield in the UK, and it's really, really exciting to be talking to you all the way to Uganda. So, Kaya, can you tell me a little bit about your professional background, where you know what you studied and the, the type of work that you're doing at the moment? Oh, thank you so much, Sandrine. I'm very happy to be hosted by you today. I am a professional organization psychologist. I have uh, studied a bachelor's degree in industrial psychology and also done my master's in organization psychology. I'm also a certified professional member of the International Coaching Federation. I very much enjoy working with people through conversation. So you see the trend of programs that I'm studying. Currently, I'm a partner at a management consulting firm which is called Strategic Engagement Limited. And this is focusing on providing 
businesses with solutions that are going to help them to grow and through people and through strategic uh, directions. Previous to that, I was the Chief Human Resource Officer in Engineering Solutions, which is an agricultural mechanization firm. And before that, I was a Chief Human Resource Officer with a financial institution. I'm an author. <laughs> what sort of uh, writing do you do? Well, in that particular book, it's really more about providing self-help context with particularly the journey from singlehood to marriage. And in the context that I'm in, there's a lot of social pressure around that, that creates a lot of, of mental health for people within the workspace. And so I was just trying to provide a different alternative about you know, making your own choices and paving a path that can help you so that we can have more mentally stable people within the workspace and then have more productive organizations. So what do you think is really the challenge for women in particular in Uganda in terms of going from degree to finding a professional space where they can flourish? Because obviously there are lots of pressures in terms of earning enough for your family, balancing having kids for women who have children and the pressure of families, the expectations that are placed on women and then becoming a professional and becoming a professional who can really flourish. What, what do you think are currently within your own country the challenges that women are facing? Well, that's an interesting question, Sandrine, because that particular area is the reason why I was pushed actually to write this particular book, to just try to provide a pushback alternative to those some of those constraints that come in, in, in my context. So the first one is the, the perception that marriage is the finality of somebody, that if you are not married, then you're not whole, and there is something lacking on you, and you've not yet reached any kind of actualization in, in your life. And that pressure is, is reinforced by so many social practices and norms that people have to deal with every single day. And then you find that people are now going to prioritize doing getting married for at any choice, at any cost. I've I've interacted with so many young ladies that have stayed in very bad and abusive relationships, either physically or emotionally, just so that they can have the societal tick that, you know, they have a, a man or they are in a relationship in, in their lives. And don't get me wrong, I'm very much for people getting married if that's the choice that they want, but they should do it on their terms and when they want to do it. So that that particular pressure that is reinforced by the social norms is, is really a lot. The second area is the issue of pay uh, equity. That's still a reality that we're dealing with here in terms of being able to negotiate for something that you're able to say is fair pay for the same skills and, and, and work that you're going to do. You'll still find people that are in the interview room that will ask you, why are you asking for that money? You know, you don't have to take care of any family. You don't have to take care of anybody. So why do you want to ask for that same money? I can understand why a guy needs that money. I need it because I deserve it. And, and I'm bringing on board value and skills that are going to provide productivity. But this is not the way that pay is negotiated in some instances. And there are so many laws against that. But there is a law, but there's also the practice. Then you also find that 
For women, there are some people that actually are forbidden to work, either by spouses or by their family members. And you would expect that in this time and era, that wouldn't be a reality, but unfortunately it still is. So there are so many people that have actually studied but are sitting at home because this is what their husband desires. And in our cultural context, that desire of the husband is very much supreme upon the choices that you have to make as a person within, as a person that is within the African context. So I think that also could be an impediment. Then there's a pursuit of further education, which is frowned upon. Either you're going to be too educated to be pursued by men, quote unquote, that is a societal comprehension, not that it's a reality. And then, or maybe your personal pursuit of education is going to get into the hindrance of you pursuing a family life. So it's either or. There is very few states, uh, instances where you are encouraged to pursue both and encouraged to say that you can have both situations. So well, the impediments are actually very many. So somebody to pursue professional growth here, they really have to want it no matter what. Yeah. What you're saying is really fascinating because when we think about women going to university, it's just the starting point, really. But also what comes next, there may be laws in place, but the practices are actually what makes things possible for people to progress or, or not. So in your own experience of having worked in different organizations, what do you think really makes the difference? In the UK, I've run workshops for women to feel more empowered and resilient and to articulate better what they want and be more assertive. But at the end of the day, you even though if you even if you work with women, you know, how we change the environment and how we change the culture is really an essential element. So so in the work that you've done in different organizations, what do you think makes the, the, the biggest difference in facilitating the, the career pro progression of women? I think one of the first things that has been very critical has been being able to sell the issue of objective selection of, of skill sets at the point of the recruitment process, especially with the senior leadership of, within the organizations. If the senior leadership understands and appreciates employment practices that helps them to select the best resources to deliver the organizational objectives, then their biases towards gender or religion or tribe, whatever other biases that they may have brought with them to the recruitment process will be self-checked because they now understand how to actually do a proper recruitment process. As an HR practitioner, that has really been critical for me, being able to explain the key best practices in recruitment practices and how they then help you to select the right person for the job, the right person for the organization, and then passing them on to the people that are actually going to sit on those recruitment panels. Because as an HR practitioner, I'm a facilitator of the process. And you have the heads of the functions that are going to come in and select these people. Those are the people that actually need to know what they need to do to get the right people into the place. So you get uh, to see that over time, you have less um, requests coming through of, I need this person to be specifically this gender or this age or this person. And then the conversation is moving more into, I need somebody that can deliver this kind of result within this kind of environment. 
I've been very blessed to work with so many organizations because I'm in the consulting space now. And you'll find maybe a client telling you, I specifically do not want to work with women who are within this age group because that's a time when they are giving birth. And you're like, okay, do you have children at your home? Says, yeah, I have got four of them. And I'm like, okay, so you don't want to have somebody giving this opportunity to your wife because she's going to give birth. And so being able to tackle that issue head on and say, let me drill it back home to you and your house, because every person that is going to bring that conversation usually has children or usually has a wife. So you'll find that there are very many women who will be like, oh, no, I don't want to hire people that are female because of this. They've got family ties and they've got family obligations. And in our current cultural context, most of the issues of primary health care of children or even education care of children has been docketed onto the onto the woman. So because you're aware of those scenarios, how do you then speak through to the person who is taking a decision? One of the things that we're doing also is coming up with induction programs that are very specific for women to help them appreciate these are the challenges that you're working against, okay? You are a primary caregiver. You know that. You know if if they call you at home and your child is unwell, you know that you're going to have to leave. So what do you now have to put in place to make sure that when you come to work, you show up? How do you go the extra mile to ensure that if I need the time off from my work because of a personal emergency, my supervisor is more than willing to give it to me because I'm the person that always shows up. I'm the person that always delivers beyond the expectations. I'm the one that is looking out for innovative ways to deliver our project or our targets. So how do you become so value-adding that you are able to get the buy-in of your supervisor to create an environment that is suitable for your ecosystem because your ecosystem is a reality for you at the end of the day. So being able to have those discussions during the induction processes and then coming up with programs that can enable people to pursue self-development have also added so much value towards getting more women into the workspace. It's interesting because in what you're saying in some ways, there is also the problem that it feels like women have got to prove themselves even more. And there is all, all that's almost kind of something quite uncomfortable about it because it's it feels like we're asking them more than we may ask men in terms of being given the permission to be in the room. The, the question then is, you know, what, what needs to change so that organizational culture accept that we are all in the same boat and that men and women are all of value without asking more of the women to be permitted to be in that space? I think one of the things that needs to be done is to stick to numbers. And for example, we've worked on a project with one of my previous workplaces where we were actually tracking productivity and labor utilization and results from the different genders. And we actually came to realize that in the space that we were working in, we were actually getting more results from the female employees. And we're now trying to understand why is that and what are some of the characteristics that they bring to the workspace that make them actually deliver more. And we were working with a very young workforce and you'd find that 
these people that are going to go the extra mile because they know they have so much stacked against them. And just like you've said, in terms of are we creating a space where we the women need to seek permission to be present? How do we move out of that? One of the things that I, I am part of is the Girls for Girls Mentorship fraternity and in this project girls for girls it's first and foremost to enable uh, women in the workspace to appreciate who they are and what they bring to the table because one of the things that we've seen is that so many women do not take up opportunities not because they're not excited to them but because they don't put their hands up so starting from the inside going out being able to enable somebody to appreciate Sandrine this is what you bring to the table I am Remarkable Facilitator, which is a program that I think Google is co-opting mm-hmm. and lean in. So I'm involved in so many programs that are going to ensure that people appreciate this is my unique factor that I bring on. Now, as a person who is a, a, a parent to a young child, I see myself and my business and my opportunities so much differently compared to before my baby came. And so how do I take all these experiences, all this uniqueness and put them as a value addition towards the people that I'm engaging with in the workspace? So that's the first thing, being able to have the women giving themselves permission to show up and to take the opportunities. The second thing is to try to build a bridge The conversation around getting women more opportunities has at some point or for some instances created some kind of hostility of now take away all the opportunities from the men and give them all to the women. And then you get resistance, you know, from the men because they are also looking for opportunities. So how do you bridge the gap to understand that this is a space where all people have to thrive based on what they can bring to the table. Because when you have that conversation, you stop getting resistance, you begin to get collaboration. So that at the end of the day, the conversation around equality and equity in the workspace is not a female-driven agenda. It's an organizational agenda to have the best resources within the organization in spite of gender. But if it becomes a thing of me versus him, then obviously, because I'm male, I've got to protect myself as well. So getting into that conversation of how do we level the ground into an objective assessment, that is what I think. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And and the use of data is absolutely critical to convince people of the difference that these things make. Can you share with us an, an initiative maybe that you've been involved in where you've really seen an organization really move the way they're thinking about the way they're recruiting people or the way they're assessing the impact of women. Do you have an example in mind that you could share with us? An organization that I worked with, and at the beginning of that engagement, the head of the organization used to make um, a joke and say, I think we need to put pills in the dispenser because There's so many young women and they're all pregnant all the time, every single time. And this was made in a joking manner, but I feel like behind the joke was a big frustration for him because 
one of the things that are being pushed now more is in terms of ratios, women to men in the organization. And so I think the funding that they had was one that came with that kind of backing in terms of requirement of having representation of women within the organization. So getting to now have to balance the stakeholder expectations of women employees vis-a-vis the frustration of them not always being around because they are in a productive environment was a very interesting concern for him. So this is one of the organizations where we actually looked into that, that the example of the data that, that I, I, I shared earlier to try to assess how many times is this employee available to show up for the work productivity? So if you have a female that is employed that is between the age of 20 to 40, you know that more likely than not, they are in their productive space and they are going to actually use that space to probably have children or not. That is their choice. So how much time are they available to come to work? Let's say that because maybe they are pregnant, they will give you, say, 70% of time because of sick leave or visits or whatever. In that time, what is the level of utilization or results? So that you can now move from tracking time as a matrix to move to tracking output as the matrix. If I give you a target to deliver on this A within this time frame, if you're able to deliver for me A within a lesser time frame, that's fantastic because then I know that this is something that you're able to actually deliver on. I measure the output versus the time. Secondly, the second initiative that was done apart from that matrix was to now try to customize the employee value proposition to appreciate what are the unique things that people require for them to actually choose this employer as an employer of choice for them that would make them comfortable and commit to the organization because it's no longer just about pay. How am I able to choose you because you've chosen to think about me as an individual? So then the initiative that was done was to try to customize the value proposition. And we sent out a small survey around what would be the three things that would be unique for you that could build a value proposition that is you know, feasible for you. And looking at that data, we realized that most of the people that were now young mothers or expectant mothers or mothers of more than one or two children were always talking about flexibility because I've got to feed my child. I've got to take my child to school. I have parent-teacher days. There's huge traffic jam. So getting to the city either I'm going to leave my home at 5 a.m. or I'm going to sit into a traffic jam for two hours just to make sure I get to work. So the issue of flexible work arrangement now came out very strongly. So being able to then say, okay, with this data, how do we provide flexible working arrangement that doesn't look like you're doing favoritism? Okay, because you also have other people to manage, other stakeholders within the organization. So then being able to build into that and say, okay, within our workspace, you have the flexibility to work a few hours from home, but then you have to be able to deliver on your targets at the end of the day. That's one. Secondly, to build trust between you and your supervisor, you always have to be in communication as much as possible. So today, if at all, I'm not going to be present. 
does my supervisor know? Because some people just never used to show up to work and say, oh, yeah, but my child is sick. What do you expect from me? So being able to know that it's a two-way street, you build trust by communicating and I build trust by accommodating. So then that helped us to see that not only the female employees tapped into it, we also began to realize that even the male employees tapped into it for various reasons. Some of them was for because of childcare. Some of them was because they have side businesses. Some of them was because they have other um, obligations that they had to take care of. But because it was an open initiative to say, look, we appreciate that you have an ecosystem that needs you, even though you're at work, we can accommodate and adjust you as long as you are always able to show up on your results. That really brought some game changer arrangements outside. The other one was to see that we can now see that we do development programs and actively target female employees to take up opportunities for progress in management positions. We used to give those opportunities, but it was open you apply if you want. If you don't apply, then that's your problem. But then taking the step further to engage the female employees to understand these opportunities are there, you qualify, why aren't you applying? And then out of those engagements, you begin to see that, okay, I realize that when I see the management team, sometimes they're going to be here and work up to 10, 10 p.m. I cannot commit to doing that. So as such, I'm comfortable here, not because this is the best I can give, but because I'm not able to give what I see is the requirement of the management position. People may decide not to go further up the research ladder or the professional ladder because they don't like what they see above them. They don't like the work culture that is in the next career stage. But facilitating this discussion with people at different stages to remove the limiting beliefs that people may have in terms of applying for some of this program is, is really, really important, really interesting. Mm. And, and we really saw a game changer coming out of, of that particular issue because once you began to realize that, then you said, okay, how do we plan differently these management works? Because, for example, there was something that we used to do that management meetings was, were always at 7 a.m., Okay. Now, if the management meeting is at 7 a.m., it means that I should have been in the workspace by, say, 6.45 or 50 to just settle in and then get ready to show up for the meeting at least five minutes before the meeting. If the meeting is at 7 a.m. and I have childcare obligations, what time am I going to leave home? What am I going to do with those obligations? Because that's the reality that I'm working with. So because I cannot show up for that, then I cannot apply to put myself in that context because I know that I wouldn't be able to perform adequately. So then having to discuss those adjustments at the management level and say, are we willing to make adjustments in how we are practicing so that we can accommodate well-being? Because even those who are showing up, they're showing up, but that's not the best way for them to actually show up at the workspace. The meeting could be in the workday, you know. So just looking at the small practices that were being done within the management space and then just having openness at that space to say, what are the things that are not the best for, you know, work-life integration that are happening, that we are doing as a management team, that we think we need to think through and change. And then having 
you know, somebody who is a CEO who is very open to saying, okay, let's explore. I need to have my management team not distracted with the day-to-day work. What are the other alternatives that we can do to achieve that objective? So focusing on what am I trying to achieve with this practice rather than the practice in itself was very great for the open-minded change and adjustment towards how we were doing management within the organization. And out of that, we were able to see more women starting to apply for management positions. And at some point, we actually had about 60% women on the management team, not because of the practices, but because they actually would be able to actually compete favorably, knowing that they'll be able to show up for the job. How are people resisting? So you may have a company that's very open-minded in terms of looking at their practices, because when you change practices that helps women, you know, it helps everyone. Let's let's be real. So, you know, why would an organization resist? What do they gain from not reviewing their practices? You say management meeting at seven o'clock in the morning is just ridiculous. How on earth were these practices put in place in, you know, in the first place? In the work that you've done with different companies, what do you think really is the resistance where you can't shift the practices or organizations that are just not prepared to review what they're doing? And what reason do they give you when they're not prepared to, to change these practices? I think, Sandrine, that's a very interesting question. And and we usually ask that question to our clients, (laughs) what's causing the resistance. But it it just usually boils down to the issue of change. And and change management is very critical in the work of an HR practitioner or in a work of a management consultant, because you're trying to help people to move from one way of working into another perceived more efficient and more effective way of working. But you've got to move people from what they're used to, the habits that they've created, and then make them appreciate what new habits that you're trying to talk about or what new habits that they are generating amongst themselves, but they're afraid to take on because they seem undoable. So then being able to break down those barriers for them to appreciate this is where I want to go, but it seems impossible. What is making it seem impossible? And can I tackle those barriers one by one? And then I don't have to change to make the change today, everything. I can change small steps, the smaller things that I can adjust. Maybe I'm not going to say that we're going to change everything, but can we make a commitment to start doing the changes? And so being able to break down the big change to small biteable changes and starting from the small change because it helps you to create momentum towards accepting that, okay, I'm seeing the result of this small change. Maybe I can try this moderate change. So the biggest resistance really comes from fear of the unknown and the adjustment that I have to make to accommodate this unknown that I don't know. And for me, this was really the reason why I took up the professional coaching program so that I'm able to take out my personal biases from helping people, management teams, or, you know, because sometimes you can have the approval of 
the management team as a whole, but then you have the resistors as individual department heads. So then being able to take yourself out of the situation and seeing what is this department head, what is this team experiencing, what are the fears that they're dealing with to, you know, that are impending them from moving from A to B. Because honestly, Sandrine, everybody wants to become better. That's the honest truth. Every organization wants to work more, to deliver more on their objectives. Every person in their team, if they are really wanting to work, they want to be better. So why would they resist the opportunity to get better? So those are the underlying things that you now deal with from the coaching perspective. And this is where the biggest concern usually is. Can I can ask you maybe some of these management practices are really kind of based based on, you know, the Western world way of, you know, doing business. And they have been probably used, you know, in a lot of African countries. And it's not necessarily the default position that people had to work together. Do you think that's the case, that the default position in terms of management is some ways of seeing the world through a Western lens that are kind of have been accepted in Uganda and other African countries. And now it's almost like, say, actually, you know, we can do things differently. Or is it not the case? I think that contributes to it because a lot of the practices that are being done here have been adopted uh, from the Western way. And the maybe the missing link is not that the ways are bad. I think it's the lack of adaptability to the, the stage or the context within which these particular practices are being applied. So, for example, if you look at, say, a practice that is in the Western world where you can have a stay-at-home dad, it's literally almost impossible to have that here because the society does not it actually admonishes it and says this is a demasculation uh, process. Now, when you have that happening and in the culture here, it's women have to take care of the children primarily, you know. So in that context, when you are putting practices directly into this space, they don't match up. So I think that there's a, the issue of lack of adaptation of what we see from the developing economies and putting them into the context that we are in and then seeing how can we adapt this to work for this particular economy. I think that's a missing link. There's a lot of research around continuously trying to improve ways that management is being done, how employees are being handled, how the employee employment contracts are being you know, tackled. But that openness to change and willingness to explore is really not trickling as much here. So you'll find that there is this practice and it's going to be handed over to the next generation of, of leaders and that's how it's going to be taken on. So it takes a huge step of courage and a very big support from the CEO to actually say we are going to look at how we're managing differently. And even the CEO has to have the backing of the shareholders uh, and, and the board. So if the board does not have the exposure and openness towards change and new ways of looking at people from cost to stakeholders, to participants who are going to push the organizational journey forward, 
then you're going to have a very huge problem to actually see new ways of doing management of people. So you have so many concepts that have been, you know, explored in the developing economy, but you have stuck ways being uh, implemented here. I think the last one would be the issue of the connectivity between research and, 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 and industry here. And this is really a big gap because you'll find that in the developing economies, you'll see that a lot of the research that is being done by academia and universities is also very much linked into management consulting and also very much linked into industry, which isn't here. So here you have the universities and the academia, and then you have the industry. And so that lack of a bridge in what I've seen and what I've observed in terms of the developing economy is that you will find that you have, say, at Sheffield, you have research that is happening, but that research is hugely impacting how industry is working, which is not the same here. And so you'll find that you have researchers um, in academia that are doing great work and exploring interesting perspectives of how organizations should work, but this is where it stops. I don't even think that 90% of the people who are in industry even read the publications of the people who are doing research here. So you have great information, but not adopted or co-opted into how industry is working. And that lack of linkage then really prevents progression and innovation within the workspace in how management should be done and how people should be co-opted into the workspace. I'm sure that lots of Western countries, there is also, uh, you know, a gap between the research that is done, you know, in an academic context and actually making use of that and the connectivity with organization. So I'd I like to move the, the conversation slightly towards what you are considering at the moment. So you are exploring doing a, a PhD, doing um, research and uh, I'd like to know why, because in some ways you are very established in the work that you do and you know, working as a coach, organizational psychologist, a consultant. It's kind of a comfortable space. So why moving into the uncomfortable space of doing research where there is a lot of pain and suffering and challenges? So what's drawing you to the dark side of the academic research world? Well, Sandrine, I think for me, the trigger is based on my last observation that I made, the lack of the linkages. And I've observed that in many instances, it's either you're in academia or you're in industry. And for me, I believe that that lack of a bridge is a huge hindrance for us in how we progress, how very many different things are done within our different countries. And so Given that now I'm fully established into the space of management consulting, I truly believe that the game changer for how our clients are going to work is to provide them empirically driven interventions and to be able to demonstrate for them practically how do you implement this intervention and how does that intervention now going to impact your results because this is what they are concerned about my results you're talking about for example right now i'm exploring the concept of job quality and you want me to embrace job quality but what does that have to do with my you know profitability at the end of the day so then being able to provide that kind of bridge to say how can we explore new ways, better ways of doing business? And can we now have those better ways co-opted in the businesses that we are seeing? And can we see that impacting 
our economic performance as a country, are we able to then see that impacting our social economic space? as individuals within that country. So that's the area of interest. How do I now acquire the skills that are going to enable the beginning of those kinds of bridges? And this is why I joined NEMRA, because NEMRA is a community of researchers. But how do you create research to trickle down into industry to be embraced, not as something of the dark side or something of the professors, to actually be embraced Mm -hmm. and you have consultative conversations happening between academia, governance, and industry to be the pathway of how do we now get more development happening? How do we actually embrace that? So this is why my motivation for that. So what have been your strategies in terms of identifying a supervisor, an institution? Because when we choose a PhD, obviously the relationship that we develop with the supervisor or the location where we choose to do a PhD we have many choices to make and we have lots of constraints as well with families and so on. I I think that has really been a a very tough journey for me as an early researcher. First and foremost, because you get into this space of you're not coming from the academia side and you have no clue what's happening. And so one of the things that I've had to do is to look at the area that I would like to explore or to work with and see how flexible is that for me and then look at which universities have invested resources or have academia that are very passionate about that space so I'm very interested in organization psychology employment practices labor markets and how these things can influence socioeconomic development of of countries so then I'm looking at which universities have interest in that which universities are doing research in those areas and which academia are actually moving away from just doing their research to publishing, but also engaging with industry, say give talks or give consultative conversations with industry, because then they won't find me very strange (laughs) in terms of what I'm trying to pursue as, as an end goal. Then also being able to have the time to put into it, to learn more about the potential supervisor, to appreciate what kind of research they've done, to see how does that then influence what areas they'll be willing to explore with you as a student and then maybe through they've done research in a developing economy do they have the curiosity to explore how that research works in in a in a developing economy is there any relatability so those are some of the things that i've been uh, considering now this year given that i've got my baby I'm now having a new span in the wheel of considering um, looking for universities that would have the flexibility to accommodate my family as part of my journey in terms of is it possible that I'm able to move with my child and a caretaker or is it possible that I can be able to have within the year time at the university and time back at home, you know, things options okay that could allow for me to have this journey without feeling like I'm having to choose either or so this is uh, something that I have uh, considered the other one obviously is funding because 
I'm not able to actually meet the cost of, of a, a PhD program and, and all the costs related to it as an international student. So the issue of considering is there funding available for international students and is that funding able to be tapped into? Lastly, in terms of reaching out to supervisors, I've actually realized that people who are in academia are so helpful, <laughs> so ready to help. And yet they have so much that they're working on and they're dealing with. But I haven't reached out to any single person who hasn't gotten back to me. Either to say, look, this is this year I'm not taking on any students or I'm on a break doing writing a book or something or your research is interesting can I explore more or your research is interesting, but you should consider this school because they have a, a chair program that is suitable for that. So being able to have the courage to reach out to the people that you find interesting because usually the contacts are available on email, uh, on online. So yeah, taking the courage to say, okay, I don't have a clue about what's going on. This person definitely is so much smarter in this space, but you know, can I just show up and say, this is who I am. This is what I want to explore. Are you willing to walk this journey with me? A lot of work to be done to identify where and when. When are you aiming to starting? I'm aiming to start in the academic year of 2021, September. By that time, my child will be one year old and more independent. And the solutions that I will have for flexible education will be more cooperative than if at all he was younger. So I'm, I'm, I'm targeting 2021 and I am currently applying to universities and hoping that I will have someone that will take a chance on me and, and walk the journey. Well, wishing you the best of luck with that. That's an exciting no, thank time. Thank you so much. One of the things we're doing with NEMRA in the next months or two is to support academic writing. And although you haven't embarked yet on, on your PhD, but you've already written a book. So in a way, you are already a writer, maybe not an academic writer yet, but you have experiences in writing. The thing that I'm always interested to hear about is the habits that people have to become to effective writer and to write regularly. What are the habits that you have to get you to write? I think... First and foremost was, for me, it was, I have to be interested in what I'm writing about. And I've found that that is very important even for the PhD program because I'm committing to this research or I'm committing to this project or this book that I'm writing. And so if the topic is boring for me or it's not deeply ingrained to why I, do I really want to explore it? it? It definitely won't work because writing and getting to the finish line is such hard work. So, yeah, being able to know that, am I really passionate about this topic? If yes, fantastic. So I have to be honest with myself. Then the second one was the willingness to read. It takes a lot of information and literature out there for you to actually get to provide good content that will make sense to the readers. So if as a person who is going to do a publication or a book, I am getting all this information out there around this topic and around my flow of thought and trying to condense it into information that can be, you know, palatable for the person that is reading it and they don't have to go and read all those very many millions of, 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 of pieces of literature. 
So being able to be willing to read and because the information is so much, learning when you read best. So I've realized that I read best in the morning. So around 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. is my best time to read because I'm, I work, I'm a morning person, so I wake up very excited and very energetic and very annoying to that we were not morning people. So I read mostly at that time. So I read in the time when my brain is willing to cooperate with me. During the day when it becomes hotter, my brain is not co- cooperating. So I've learned to read at that time. Then also taking notes as and when I'm reading on the go, because I've realized that you might keep a mental note, but you will have so many mental notes that you will not remember. So I've, I write on the go, sticky notes, Google Drive, any information that I have that pops up to me or I've thought or a concept when I'm on the go or in the car somewhere, I stop, write it down and say, I'll come back to you later. So having to say, I don't have to do all my writing at the same time. As when the concept makes sense to me, I have to take a moment, give it a break and make it make a quick note about them, then I'll get back to it. And then also writing every day is a habit that has, has helped me because sometimes I'm not in the mood to write, but because I have practiced that I must write today, these mental notes that I've made will help me in the days when I have no new light bulb moments. So writing every day then gets your mind to continuously think about the concept and explore it even in your subconscious so that when you want to write and you have the light bulb moment, the information is readily available to you. But then also asking for feedback and being open to it. (laughs) I had to rewrite my book about five times and oh that sounds painful (laughs) yeah it's actually very painful the first time I had to rewrite I think 90% of the book because I read it and I was like but this is this is not the style that I was going for so my book is more of a conversation with the reader like Sandrine I'm sharing my life with you and then halfway down the book it's like Sandrine I'm commanding you what to do And so being able to say, okay, I'm going to go back to the drawing board and rewrite, it's painful, (laughs) (laughs) but it's so worth it. So the feedback Mm -hmm. that you get from peer readers or people who are in the target audience and say, I'm writing this publication for someone who is in this space, do they understand what I'm trying to communicate and are they getting it clearly? That's very helpful. All right. Kaya, it's been really a pleasure talking to you. I really hope we could carry on the conversation, but I, I know that you are busy. I really look forward to meeting you again through the, the Net, Dem, NEMRA network. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in uh, getting uh, this PhD. It's exciting time. And I, I'm sure that you'll have a, a, a great things to contribute. So best of luck with that. Thank all you right. so much. Sandy, I wish you all the very best. It's my, right. It was my pleasure. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to to invite some new interviewee on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me. 
at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com. 